Welcome to the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. In this inaugural edition, Grant McHeron and Managing Editor Catherine Ziesing provide coverage of the ADM Congress 2020. Welcome everyone to the first episode of the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. My name is Grant McCarran and uh, joining me today is Catherine Ziesing, Managing Editor of the Australian Defence Magazine. Catherine, how are you doing? Hi Grant, I'm well, thank you. Excellent. Now, Catherine, as this is the first episode of the podcast, uh, we thought we'd discuss Australian Defence Magazine. There may be some people out there who, shock horror, may not have heard of the magazine or picked it up and read it. They may be in other countries. Uh, So can you tell me about uh, the Australian Defence Magazine's history, or ADM as most of us know it, coverage and its typical audience? Uh, Thanks, Grant. So ADM has been publishing for over 25 years now. We are a Yaffa Media Title, which is Australia's largest independently family-owned and run media company. So we publish a monthly print magazine. We have a website, australiandefence.com.au, which is updated daily. Uh, We're across social media channels. And we also do awards and events. So we have writers all up and down the East Coast and freelancers all over the place to cover everything defence industry policy. So we focus a lot on procurement and sustainment and policy as it relates to those areas. So I guess our main readership is obviously the Department of Defence, most particularly um, CASG, DST Group, uh, E&I Group, as well as the services. Uh, We're quite widely read in government, I would say, but also across defence industry, both primes and SMEs startups uh, across a range of domains. So it's a pretty wide portfolio that we cover. Yeah, I'm not surprised that uh, CASG, the Capability Acquisition Sustainment Group, would be heavy readers, um, given that you're covering a lot of the programs that they do. Uh, now, Kath, uh, you said the magazine's been around a while. I know you've not been there since the start. Uh, how did you get first started with ADM? Oh, so I started with ADM at the end of 2006. So Yaffa was looking for a staff writer, which in the journalism world is kind of like, you're a pleb, do all the things. Uh, And I worked as the staff writer for ADM and also titles in commercial aviation and national security. So ADM was more interesting, I found personally, because I didn't have a background in defense at that time. I put more effort in, uh, I rose up the ranks, I became editor in 2008, uh, taking over from Gregor Ferguson, who had been there, oh goodness, so long, Um, and then I became managing editor at the beginning of 2018. So yeah, 14 years this year with ADM, and it's been wonderful. I I have a great team, and even better mentors within the company and in the wider defense community as well. No, that's great. Now, uh, during our quick chat there about ADM's history and and what it does, you mentioned events. Uh, I've been to a few of the ADM events. Can you tell us a typical spread of uh, what we can get every year or two uh, on the cycle from ADM? So we generally run on a 12-month cycle. So at the moment, obviously, uh, COVID life has made things (laughs) a little bit more interesting than perhaps we would like. Uh, But generally, we run five events a year. So we start off with uh, ADM Congress, which is our signature event, and we do that in February every year. Uh, And that has captains of industry, senior one, two, and three stars. Uh, It pretty much sets the tone for the year. 
and we had number 17 this year, which was absolutely amazing. We then move on to space in April. We have STEM and defense, usually around August. We have estate and infrastructure and base services in September. We partner with the NT government for Northern Australian Defence Summit at the end of October, and that rounds us out for the year. And then it's time to relax for a couple of months before it's back into Congress. Well, yeah, and then you've got all the other events which happen on the defence calendar. Um, so we, we try to tailor them to specific areas, um, but we also realise there's there are so many places to get information, but what I really like about the ADM events is that there's a lot of time uh, for networking, to, to getting to meet people within your community. Um, you know, one thing I, I really highlight at these events is that if you don't come home with at least half a dozen new business cards, then we need to do something different. <laughs> make, friends, make connections. Probably means you've been work. sitting in the corner. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Look, it's, um, we, we, do, we do encourage people to get out and about at these events. Um, so you're not just there for the content, which I must admit is is first rate, but it's also the chance to, as I said, network, meet other people that are in the same space and, and just make those connections so that when you need widget X or service Y, you can pick that card out of your pocket and know who to call. Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, so we've got ADM the magazine, ADM online, which is updated mm-hmm. daily, as you mentioned. Yep. We've got the events, a handful mm-hmm. of those every year. Now we're starting to do a podcast. Yes. Uh, What's, what's the inspiration and goals behind the podcast for ADM? So we wanted to move more into a multimedia uh, kind of space. So we started doing videos last year at the Pacific Trade Show, and we focused a lot on our directory of defense suppliers. So this is a, a database of usually small to medium companies, and we've got a few hundred in there, and we wanted to really showcase what a lot of these SMEs were doing, perhaps in a medium that they wouldn't normally have access to. So video, lots of small companies, you know, they're started by super smart engineers and they may not have, you know, marketing, strategic communications, BD people that have a background in how to deal with the media. So we found uh, moving into video was absolutely fantastic and podcasts were the next step, I think, in our multimedia push. So we are focusing on... I guess some of the broader themes around what's happening in defense. And I really want to have a look at innovation, how people are using technology differently, how they're using processes differently, you know, lessons learned that they're applying from adjacent industries. So I think podcast is the the natural progression for the ADM group. And of course, podcasts are great because you can listen to them while you're driving, doing the chores, mowing the lawns, all that kind of thing, which is oh, yeah. uh, really kind of hard to do with a video podcast. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> Round upon. Um, so uh, we've, of course, touched ADM Congress and uh, 2020's ADM Congress back in February. That was the 17th one in its history. Uh, what was the inspiration for starting it and what got it going? Oh, goodness. So my predecessor, my the, the publisher and founder of Australian Defence Magazine, Judy Hins, uh, went to the old DMO and said, look, um, we really need to have a better conversation between defence and industry. So ADM's aim has always been to be that communication bridge between defence and industry. And there was an appetite, I think, at the time to do something a little bit different. 
And Congress over the years has always been an opportunity, I think, at the beginning of the year to set the scene. So you do get a lot of high-level policy, strategic-type presentations, but also a bit of an update on what various companies are doing. Uh, We try and mix it up every year in terms of SMEs and startups and primes. Um, I'm very conscious not to get sales pitches. I do (laughs) not like getting sales pitches at Congress. So we, uh, we brief our speakers to stay away from that. But it's also, it's a very open room as well. So while there are other media members there, it is a really good chance to, to meet people, I think, at a similar level and get a, get a lay of the land. Um, I was chatting to a, a couple of delegates this year, and it's really strange to me because I've obviously been going for well over a decade. Uh, and there are people in the room that have been going themselves for pretty much the entirety of the Congress. I was chatting to to one bloke and he has been to every single Congress except one. Uh, but then I'm also chatting to people, it's their very first Congress. So we have to try and cater to people that have heard it all before and maybe possibly might even be a little bit cynical to those who are bright and shiny and new and just drinking it up like a sponge. So yeah, we... Um, we do our best to keep it fresh and interesting, but we do tend to have regulars that come in. Uh, so we always have the budget update from Aspie, so Mark Thompson, and now Marcus Hellier in that role. And we generally have the head of the acquisition group, so from DMO and now into CASG. Uh, we like to have a minister there, if at all possible, if they're in the country, or we get a video if they're not. Yeah, so it's a really great mix. I love the balance in there. And, um, you know, we've also digitized it. We streamed it online for the first time this year. So we had just an audio stream, not a video stream, unfortunately, but it allowed people that perhaps couldn't travel to Canberra but still wanted to know what was going on have access to that valuable content. Yep, and now we're going to include some of that valuable content in episodes of this podcast for those who want to re-listen to it and so on. Uh, It's great to see how the – I've been to a few of them now. It's great to see how they're evolving and uh, I'm certainly looking forward to next year's. And uh, I, I, t- I also kind of like the ASPI budget analysis. Uh, those guys don't hold back. <laughs> no, no. I think if you want something sugar-coated, perhaps head to aisle five in your local supermarket um, because <laughs> ASPI is not providing that at all. Uh, I really no. like the way they put the narrative behind the numbers. So, you know, this is, this is what defence is saying, this is what the minister is saying, and this is what the numbers are saying. Yeah, and it's it's quite fun because the numbers quite often don't align with what everyone's saying. But Ooh. no, <laughs> but, uh, but so you've just heard some uh, input from, of course, Kath and myself about uh, about ADM Congress. Well, let's have a listen uh, to Gary Stewart. He's the CEO of Vehicle Systems Asia Pacific at Rheinmetall, and uh, they were one of the principal sponsors uh, for 2020's edition. And uh, Gary had a few observations to say to us about his thoughts on ADM Congress. I find that the ADM Congress is particularly pertinent to to us and to many of us in this room because it sets a bit of a line of departure for each year for government, for defence and for industry to actually understand what are our respective priorities, needs and challenges and then provide the forum for us to actually discuss that and make sure that we're all stepping off together uh, into the year and over the next 12 months. I'm looking forward to hearing from our defence leadership and our government leadership about what are their priorities and challenges for the year ahead so that we can make sure that we remain oriented the right way with them. 
Uh, I'm looking forward always to ASPE's economic reflection on the past and their uh, prognosis for where, we, where they see expenditure going into the future. And of course, hearing from uh, my industry colleagues, peers, and our esteemed international delegates as well. Now, of course, a major item on everyone's minds in the last year or so has been uh, Australian Industry Capability, also known as AIC. Now, Kath, uh, you had a few things to say to us uh, at Congress about uh, this topic, so we'll throw to that recording now. We have a task ahead of us in the defence community. The government has put forward a $200 billion spending plan, the biggest recapitalisation of our entire military since World War II. And you, my good people, have been asked to respond to that demand across every single domain, in every single service, in every single state, leveraging the capabilities that you have at home and abroad in whatever home market your company might be from, in whatever case, suits. Because we are a diverse crowd. We have SMEs, we have micro SMEs, we have primes. We have requirements when it comes to AIC. And I think the C in this context is really important. Australian industry content or Australian industry capability. And I think that is evolving, that is changing. Uh, Minister for Defence Industry, Melissa Price, has been very clear that she wants capability. She just doesn't want content. She doesn't want you to tick a box. She wants you to transfer IP to have a sovereign Australian industry across so many parts of our community, across so many domains and technologies. I think once upon a time, Australia was seen as a very strong manufacturing base, and that has changed over the last decade, particularly over the time that ADM Congress has been running. But we are not lost. We are not lost by any stretch of the imagination. We still have so much capability here, and it is growing. And you are all part of that. So Kat's comments, definitely interesting there on AIC. And Gary also had some comments that uh, were well worth listening to on the topic of AIC. And let's have a listen to what he had to say. Four years ago, the future was rosy, full of potential. Uh, major defence decisions had not been made. And a short four years later, we find Rheinmetall with Land 400 Phase 2 delivering the Boxer Combat Reconnaissance Vehicle, clear decisions around the future frigate, submarine, offshore patrol vessel, and other major defence programs. And we as a nation and we as industry, in direct support of the Australian government and the Australian Defence Force, now have that simple challenge of delivery. And uh, it is a very demanding challenge on all of us. And it is now a two-pronged challenge because we not only have to ensure that we deliver the best capability for the Australian Defence Force, but we also realise the policy and the aspirations of government in ensuring that we optimise and maximise the Australian industrial benefit and economic prosperity that should come with those major investments. So, Kath, there we go. We've uh, heard a number of comments on AIC, both from yourself and from Gary. Uh, do you have anything else you'd like to say about Australian industry capability? Look, Grant, there's so much happening on this front. Um, obviously, government is doing a review into AIC and how how we measure that, what we're looking for in terms of performance. Uh, so anecdotally, I think most of the major programs on the books at the moment are looking at around 60%, but I don't think there's agreed definitions of what AIC looks like lower down the supply chain and also what's content versus capability. So when AIC was first introduced, that C was very much content, you know, buying stuff here, um, which is great and does have a place, but I think capability is more about IP transfer, that intellectual property, getting 
you know, not just the, the no hows, but the no why as well. Yep. And I think that has been, um, a really big shift in policy over the last few years. I'm looking forward to the minister's review on the framework at the moment. I know Kaz G's Martin Halloran is looking at this at the moment and is hoping to report back in July to government uh, because at the moment a lot of this happens in hindsight. So we don't know what AIC is until we finish a program. Yeah, so I, I, I think there needs to be some more work, I guess, done around the performance measuring whilst the programs are underway because otherwise you're looking back and pointing fingers um, once the job is already done, and I'm not sure what the value is in that. There's been a lot of discussion about uh, sovereign capability and the concept that uh, if you're relying on imports from overseas and a supply line from overseas and things happen, Australia's an island and it's very easy to make life difficult for us to get anything, just block our, our sea lanes. Uh, so that's sovereign capability, the ability to actually supply spares, ongoing work and so on in country. Uh, that, that's been, I've heard that bandied about a bit lately. Oh, look, I think uh, particularly the COVID-19 pandemic has really highlighted some of the gaps and vulnerabilities that Australia has as an economy um, across the nation, across a number of sectors. So obviously health and medical um, has been at the forefront of people's minds recently. But it's, it's also coming down the line to other sectors that perhaps you wouldn't expect as much. Um, you don't realise how fragile your supply chain is until it's compromised by something that you can't even see. Yeah, as you said, COVID's definitely done that and brought it front of mind. I think a lot more people mm. will pay attention to it. Sovereign capability concept was, uh, I remember reading about it in ADM towards the end of last year, early this year. It's been an opportunity, I think, also for companies to show how agile they can be as well. So a lot of manufacturing has pivoted on the spot to provide uh, some really great products into a space perhaps where they haven't done it before. So, you know, Vali was involved in making ICU beds. Um, you know, this is a company that's in a defence context best known for trucks and trailer modules, um, but they have an amazing engineering capability that they were able to turn around. Uh, companies like Axiom in in Adelaide there, you know, they make machined parts for the JSF. They do some really complex things. Um, but then they were making face shields and other, other PPE equipment and they did it. They all retooled incredibly quickly. Um, so there are some really great stories out there of companies who answered the call. Yeah. I know, and it's, there's also been ones where uh, defence has worked very closely with a company. But uh, there's also a couple of, well, I'm going to call them mega projects, an accumulation of, of projects. Uh, mm -hmm. There's the land projects, replacing a number of our vehicles. New ones have already mm -hmm. started coming online, more are yet to come. Yep. A really big one at the moment is, of course, all the sea projects. Just had the uh, air warfare destroyer, the latest one and final one, come into uh, well full acceptance by the Navy, and it's going through its workup. We've got uh, all the work being done on the ANZACs. We've got the submarines coming along. We've got the Hunter class coming along. There's a lot of work and patrol boats everywhere. It's, it's all the time of the sea at the moment. How do you see those projects going? Uh, not too long ago, we had. Um, Air Force getting its time in the sun with C-17, Super Hornets, Growlers, Wedgetail, F-35. They're going to be bringing on Peregrine eventually in the next year or two. But 
that they've had their time in the sun. Now it seems to be major sea with a little bit of land. Is that how you see the next few years? Look, the maritime programs that are on the books at the moment are phenomenal. I think uh, Chief of Navy Vice Admiral Mike Noonan summed it up best when he pointed out, uh, just like his predecessor, um, Tim Barrett, that this is the biggest recapitalization of the Australian Navy since World War II. This is massive. So it's not just once in a generation. It is huge. And it's across every single major platform that the Navy currently operates. So as you say, we've got the attack-class submarines, we've got the hunter-class frigates, we've got the Arafura-class patrol boats, uh, we've got the new supply-class oilers, tankers, and Navy is also making a move into unmanned technologies, and they're also civilianizing something. So the, the hydrographic uh, element of Navy is going to become much more commercial. Having said that, um, you know, Border Force uh, will also be looking at new ships as well. So, you know, we've got some extra Cape classes now that uh, Navy is operating as well. There's so much happening in this space um, and, and the mine countermeasures as well is, is coming along. Technology, I think, has moved ahead in such leaps and bounds, particularly in this space, that there are many opportunities for both local and international companies to showcase what they can do and how they can do it. Which brings us back to AIC once again. <laughs> Yes, it does. <laughs> so it looks like it's going to be a very exciting and uh, fascinating time, provided, of course, the uh, government can continue to fund all these projects as they've, they've promised. Uh, Post-COVID, we'll have to have a look at that. But uh, it looks like, I mean, the, the Navy projects aren't going to be just three or four years. They're going to be 20, 30 years, aren't they? Oh, even more than that. If you look at something like the attack class, um, the grandparents – of the crew that will be crewing that last boat haven't even met yet. <laughs> so I have two primary school-aged kids, and when they grow up and have their grandkids, they will still be crewing the attack class. Wow. So it's, yeah, like this is way, way beyond the political cycle of a couple of years. This is generational stuff. So we will probably have attack class submarines in the water until what? 2070, 2080, depending on how things go. Um, that's that's pretty. Bon yeah, when you think about it, like in in terms of like the human scale of life, it, it's pretty bonkers. Um, yeah. And and the same with you know the hunter class where we're building these now. So I think we when do we have the first one in the water? Mid to late twenty twenties. Uh, and once again, that will be a game changing capability for Navy. Um, you know, all the lessons learned from the ANZAC class, we're going to have a world-leading uh, radar on there, which is designed and built here in Australia with CEA, you know, just yep. down the road in Canberra, which is absolutely wonderful. Um, and we're going to be part of a much larger Five Eyes community. Three out of the Five Eyes partners will be running some variant of the global combat ship, mm -hmm. um, which I think will do wonders for interoperability. In comparison of stories and training and notes and so on, so we're, oh, exactly, we're, the user group will be quite vibrant. Yeah, so we're sitting at we've we've had some amazing projects. Uh, a lot of people were saying to me the other day, "Oh, you know, everything's calming down now because you've got through all those new aircraft and all that." But as we've just discussed, there's land, there's sea, definitely sea. So we're on the cusp of another amazing three to five years of getting a lot of this in. Started, underway, progressing, etc. So I think it's a pretty good time to have the podcast here to report on it and supplement yeah, the magazine. There's, 
the ADF, in terms of its capability, is in a constant state of transformation, I would say. Uh, there's always new capabilities coming online, working with legacy capabilities as they transition off. Um, Air Force, I think, for the last decade has uh, traversed that terrain quite well. Um, you know, they, they had a, a full-on decade where 80% of their entire fleet rolled over. Uh, it was quite massive. And I think Army is also up for that step change. Uh, they've done a lot of work in their digital backbone and the combined arms fighting system that Land 400 underpins uh, will reshape how they operate, I think. Um, you know, every vehicle being a node in the digital battle space will just, it will be revolutionary, I think, in terms of how they fight and how they communicate. At the moment, we still talk a lot about kill chains and it will become a kill web. It will be any sensor best shooter. Um, Correct. And, and I think that is really powerful when you look at that through a lens of artificial intelligence and machine learning and unmanned man teaming. Um, I'm really excited about some of the possibilities that um, the ADF is going to be exploring in the next, you know, five, ten years in this space in particular. Uh, it's, uh, it's exciting times and uh, we're looking forward to bringing all that information to you. As you were saying right at the start, looking at uh, what we could bring in in terms of the innovation and reporting on that and using the podcast for information that uh, may not make it to the magazine for another cycle. Uh, there's there's so much incredible stuff going on out there and I'm looking forward to uh, working with you to bring it to the uh, audience. Catherine Zeesing, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and being with us for the inaugural podcast episode. Here's to many more. Thanks very much, Grant. Speak soon. The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yeffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence, or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au, or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au.